Yeah, we celebrate your faithfulness. I know, think about our, my own life, and I know all of us, Lord, this week, as we've gone about our week, there have been certain winds and waves that have crashed upon our lives. Sometimes, Lord, it's the doubts we have. Sometimes it's our own sins. Sometimes, Lord, it's our suffering or the suffering we see in those around us. But, Lord, we're here this morning because we long for you to reattach us to your son, Jesus Christ, for you to wrap us around him, knowing full well that he is the resurrected Lord who is seated at your right hand. Lord, and if we're in him, we cannot be moved. And so, God, we run to him for refuge today. We run to him for something solid in this world. As, as everything else shakes, as everything else moves, as everything else falls apart, God, we ask this morning that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus, the one who is faithful, the one who remains, the one who is steadfast. God, as always, as we look to your word, we believe just as, like as we sang this morning, that there's not one word that you've spoken that doesn't come to pass. There's not one promise that you've given that will not come true. And so as we open your word this morning, we ask you would fill us with courage, fill us with hope, but most importantly, Lord, fill us with yourself. We long to know you, to see you, to wonder at your glory, to be reminded again just how faithful you are. God, lead us by your word, lead us by your spirit to worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and worship. Amen. As you're taking a seat, uh, our kiddos who've been checked in can head uh, to the back. And I want to invite you to open your Bible to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. If you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to go grab one in the back, uh, up against the back wall there. It'll probably be helped uh, to have a Bible with you. We're going to read together Esther chapter 3. All right, Esther 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay, pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month to the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have, who have charge of the king's business, that they might put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to governors all over the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, as, the book of the, as we've been working through this book of Esther, uh, we started in chapter 1, then last week we looked at chapter 2, and uh, chapter 1 started in a dark place, and then chapter 2 got darker. But as we turn to chapter 3, we enter into a, a darkness, a depth of darkness that we almost couldn't uh, believe would be imaginable. This chapter is so heinous, so evil, and so dark. Uh, when I was in college, Kyle Stewart and I, who Kyle, Kyle's our administrative director here, we went to college at Coastal together. And one summer while we were in college, we signed up for kind of like a ministry discipleship training uh, summer. Uh, we went down to Panama City Beach, and we were there for, for the whole summer. And um, there was one afternoon that I needed to drive Kyle's car with a, with a bunch of other people uh, because he wasn't available. And I was the only one out of the group who knew how to drive a stick shift. And so I volunteered, and I was the one who was put in charge of driving the group to where we needed to go. So I get in the car and I do the things that I normally do to drive a stick shift, the things I learned to do growing up to drive a stick shift. But for some reason, things just aren't quite working properly. It's like I'm having to really wrestle with this car and like I can kind of get into gear, but the harder I try to move forward, it just feels that there's this opposition pushing hard against me. And so, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you volunteer for something and now you're like looking like you don't know what you're doing. You start to sweat. You start to kind of get embarrassed and you start to feel like it gets worse and worse, like the harder you try. So finally, kind of exhausted, I, I just call Kyle and I'm like, hey, man, like, I don't know what the deal is, but like I, something's wrong with your car. I, I promise I know how to drive a stick shake, but it's just not working properly. And he simply just asked me one question. He said, did you take off the emergency brake? And I realized that even though I did know how to drive this car, even though I knew how to operate the vehicle, there was this hidden underneath opposition that was holding me back, that was pushing against me. The harder I tried to drive, the harder the opposition was going to come uh, against me. Now, sometimes that is exactly how life feels. That as good is moving forward in the world, that as things that are good and right and beautiful move forward, there is always this hidden un 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 under the hood uh, opposition that is pushing back up against that every advance it seems that God's kingdom makes, there is some force pushing back against in the opposite direction. And here's what we have to understand. As we look at the scriptures, as we look at the Bible, that opposition to everything good in the world, that pushback against what is right and godly and, and good in, in this world, it's not just some impersonal force. It's not like there's just some dark energy out in, out in the universe that pushes back against everything that's good and right. No, evil has someone behind it. Evil has someone that is a catalyst. Evil is being poked and prodded along by a being, and that being's name is Satan. 
As we learned uh, last month in December, when we went through the book of 1 John, we spent the, the, book of, uh, the month of December going through 1 John. 1 John 3, 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared. So in other words, the reason Jesus came into this world was to destroy the works of the devil. Um, Esther chapter 3 that we just read introduces us to a man named Haman. Uh, Haman is not Satan, but Haman is an enemy of God's people. And in many ways, Haman reflects Satan. That as he, we see him think, and as we see him act, and as we see him operate, and as we see him try his very best to come up against God's people, he is this reflection for us of who Satan is. So on one level, uh, this is a real story about a real man named Haman who is evil. But on another level, Haman represents something so much deeper, so much, something so much darker, that Haman actually represents this ongoing evil that is produced by the devil in this world. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his classic uh, work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, said this. He said, Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here, nor happy hereafter. So I want you to think for a second. If you, if you were to come up with your list of like the four most important things for you to understand in this world, the four things that you should give yourself most to understanding and studying and figuring out in this world, would the devices of Satan make your list? Thomas Brooks is saying, look, we've got to understand our world, not from our perspective. We've got to understand our world from God's perspective, from the Bible's perspective. And knowing how Satan works in this world, understanding his power and how he works and how he hates God's people is very important for us. Here's the one thing, after look, at the end of this, this morning, here's what we'll be able to admit. We will be able to admit outright that Satan is stronger than we are. But we will also have hope in this fact, that God is stronger than Satan. And so this morning, we're going to look at six things about the enemy. And again, we're going to be looking at the life of Haman, this man Haman, but, but all along the way, we're going to be seeing what it teaches us about Satan himself. And so the first thing this morning, the first thing we learned about the enemy is that the enemy has power in this world. The enemy has power in this world. Uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again of Esther chapter 3. They say, After these things... King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king, Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Now, uh, if you were here last week, you would remember that at the very end of chapter 2, so the, where, where chapter 2 ends is actually a man named Mordecai, uh, who becomes a hero. Mordecai saves the day. Mordecai actually saves the king's life. And so as we turn from chapter 2 to chapter 3 and someone's being promoted, we might expect that it would be Mordecai who would be promoted. I mean, he just saved the king's life. But instead, we see Haman, Mordecai's enemy, being promoted. Haman is this evil man, and he has now been seated at the right hand of the king. He is advanced in power above everybody else in the whole kingdom except for the king himself. And here's what we're going to learn. This honor that the king gives him, it's not just some, some sort of performative honor. You know, sometimes in life people are given titles or honors, and it doesn't really mean much. It's just sort of a, a performance. No, Haman's, Haman's title that he's been given is real power. 
He's going to be given so much power that when he wants to exterminate an entire ethnic group, he has the power to do that. And Haman's power in this world mirrors the power that Satan has in this world. I just want to read two passages from the, from the Bible to kind of argue this. Uh, first, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is what Paul says about Satan. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is not God, but Paul wants us to understand his power. He wants us to understand his position in this world, so much so that he's willing to call Satan the God of this world. Maybe we think, Paul, you can't do that, man. You're not allowed to talk about Satan that way. Well, listen to what the Lord Jesus says about Satan in John 12, 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Paul calls Satan the God of this world, and Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So what's the deal? What's this about? What it tells us is that in some measure, God has given Satan authority in this world to carry out tyranny. On some level, God has given Satan a certain measure of authority to cause havoc, to cause chaos, to cause harm in this world. And it also means that we understand that all that's wrong in this world, all that's going wrong, it's not just because of some dark energy, some impersonal force. No, there is a being. There is someone behind the evil. There is someone behind all the chaos. Now, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering why God even allows Satan to begin with. You know, like, why, why does he tolerate him? And to be quite honest with you, we don't have a full answer. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us the, the whole truth. But here's what we do know about Satan. First of all, we know this. He's a created being who rebelled against God just like we did. And he is a created being who will ultimately have to stand before God and be judged just like we will. And what we know about Satan is that sometimes, even unwittingly, he carries out God's plan even through his own evil and devised schemes. That's what we do know about Satan. Um, here's the most important thing to remember about the power that Satan has in this world, the power that the enemy has in this world. It is our sin, it is our sin that gives Satan a foothold in this world. It is our sin that gives the enemy room to exercise power in this world. Um, I don't know if anybody here has ever um, done any kind of rock climbing. Uh, if you are someone who's like legitimately done real rock climbing, uh, you're, you're crazy. Um, if you ever, have you ever seen, like I've watched videos of these people that are like, I'm talking about thousands of feet up in the air climbing these walls. And, and like uh, some of them don't even wear a harness, right? This is just, to me, it's just nuts. I'm the kind of person like, I watch the video and my palms just start sweating. Like, I, like you know, I have to take the blanket off of my feet. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't watch this. You know, it just like, it freaks you out to think about these people doing this. But listen, the only way that these rock climbers make it up a, a wall face is there are these little indentations, these little protrusions where they're able to kind of fit their fingers and, and fit their toes, that there's this little foothold that allows them to, to scale up a, law, a wall. If those did not exist, if those footholds were not there, if those little protrusions were not there, it wouldn't matter how skilled, skilled a person was, they could not climb up that wall face. And what we learn about Satan's power is that it is our sin that gives him a foothold. It is our sin that creates that space, that creates that room for him to do things in the world. That was where the first sin came from. When Satan got his power at the very beginning, 
it was through Adam and Eve's fall that he gained a foothold into this world. And we most especially see that illustrated actually through this man, Haman. See, there's this little detail about Haman that we can't miss. Multiple times throughout Esther chapter 3, we are told that Haman was an Agagite. In other words, Haman was a descendant of King Agag. King Agag plays an important role in uh, the Old Testament, in the Bible. God had told King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, to kill King Agag and all his people. And guess what Saul did? Saul killed most of them, and he left King Agag alive. So here we are generations later, and the only reason that Haman, the Agagite, is in a position where he can exterminate the entire ethnic group of the Jews is because of Saul's sin. That it was Saul's disobedience to God that created a foothold, that created space for the enemy. That if Saul had obeyed God, this particular crisis wouldn't have even existed. And so this is a genuine reminder to us of why our obedience to God matters. Guys, here at this church, we praise God that we are saved by grace. We praise God that he forgives sinners, but we also take our sin really seriously. We understand that disobedience to God never turns out right. That turning away from God and rebelling against him, all it ever does is create space for more confusion, more chaos, more turmoil in this world. That yes, God saves us by grace, but we take our, obe- our obedience seriously because we do not want to give the enemy a foothold. So we see through Haman that Satan has power in this world. The second thing about the enemy we see is that the enemy hates God's people. The enemy hates God's people. Uh, We'll read verses 3 through 6 of Esther 3. It says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman. They tattled on him. In order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman is promoted and everyone is commanded to bow down to him, but Mordecai refuses And we find out after his friends prod him long enough, we find out that the reason why is because Mordecai was a Jew. And here's an important detail that we learned last week in chapter 2, if you're here, about uh, Mordecai. We didn't bring it out, but this is now, in chapter 3, we learn this makes sense. Mordecai was a descendant of Saul. And so here you have Mordecai, the descendant of Saul, and you have Haman, the descendant of King Agag. And their history, their feud, has gone back generations. This is a historic issue uh, that's at play. But this history goes back further than just Saul and Agag. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. See, Haman's fury to destroy the Jews is simply an outflow. It's simply an outflow of Satan's hatred for all of God's people. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is a very important verse in the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, we understand, we, we learn so much about the history of this world. All the way back at the very beginning of the Bible, we get this snippet 
that then gets expanded out and explains so much of our lives, so much of what's going on in our world. And it's a, uh, a verse that we can't miss. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So who is God talking to do in Genesis 3.15? God is talking to Satan. And he's saying, look, there's going to be this cosmic battle between you and my people, between you and some future descendant of mine. And embedded in this curse against Satan, God promises salvation for the world. This is the first mention of a Messiah. This is the first mention where God actually tells us that he's going to send somebody into this world who is actually going to crush Satan. That Satan is going to make war against this future Messiah and his family, but then eventually that Messiah is going to dominate and end up victorious over you. So maybe we wonder, if Satan knows that he's doomed, if he knows that he's not going to win, why does he keep going? Why does he pursue in his hatred of God's people? If, he, if he's known for thousands and thousands of years that his doom was certain, why does he keep going? Well, uh, if you've ever been around, uh, let's just take, for example, a child who starts doing something that is totally irrational and doesn't make sense, and they just keep doing it, and you try to help them understand why what they're doing doesn't make sense, but they just keep doing it anyways, then you understand that sometimes as people, we don't do things because they're rational. And when, quote-unquote, grown-ups do the same thing, and they're so prideful that they think they're going in the right direction when they're really going in the wrong direction, and they keep persisting going in the wrong direction, even while everyone else around them is telling them they're going in the wrong direction, what we call those people is we call them babies. We tell them, hey, you are acting like a child. And here's what I'm trying to say. Satan is the biggest baby who has ever existed. He is such a sore loser. He knows that he's not going to win. He knows he's not getting his way, but he's not acting rationally. He is so full of himself. He is so full of his own pride that he keeps on going even though he knows that he's going to lose. Uh, last month, I was watching some of the bowl games, uh, the football bowl games, and I noticed like after the game was already over, like one team won, one team lost, there were these fights that broke out. I literally saw one guy come up behind another one. The game has been over for like 15 minutes. The guy is singing with the band over on the side, and this guy just comes up behind him, just sucker punches him out of nowhere. And I'm thinking, dude, you lost already. You know, what are you doing? Go get on the bus. Like, go get on the bus. Go lick your wounds. Go home. It's, it's time to, to accept that you lost. But this is Satan. He knows he's lost, but he's a big baby, and he is, he is a sore loser. And so even though he will not win, he continues to spew hate. He tempts God's people. He accuses God's people. He comes after God's people, even though it makes no sense. So while uh, Satan's continued hatred for God's people makes no sense, and he won't stop, particularly his, his hatred for us in our time, in our moment, will come towards the church of Jesus Christ. Satan particularly hates his church, God's church. He hates the he hates those who are faithful to Jesus. He hates those who love the word of Jesus. He hates those who live in the pattern of Jesus. But, again, uh, to, to mention Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, again, who wrote uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. This is how he helps us think about Satan's hatred towards God's people. He says, Consider that you cannot engage against the saints, but you must engage against God himself. You cannot be fighters against the saints. In other words, you can't be fighters against God's people, but you will be found in the casting up of the account to be fighters against God himself. And what greater madness than for weakness itself to engage against an almighty strength? 
So even as we have this raging enemy attacking us, really in attacking us, he's actually attacking God. And that is utterly stupid. He's a fool. So we can admit, we can admit, Satan, yeah, okay, you're stronger than us. You're smarter than us. But we put our faith in a God who's stronger than you. We put our faith in a God who will triumph over you. We, when we cry out to God in the midst of opposition, so here you are in your life, you're under attack, you feel the opposition, and you turn to the Lord? You turn to the one who is stronger than you? You're actually turning Satan's plan against him. What he's trying to mean for evil in your life, God is actually using for good because it is casting you further and further and further into dependence upon the Lord, who himself is your strength. So the enemy has power. He hates God's people. And third, this morning, the enemy despises God's law. The enemy despises God's law. We'll read verses 7 through 9. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So when Mordecai won't bow down to Haman, Haman doesn't immediately uh, have this outburst of rage. Internally, he is furious. Internally, he's so consumed with himself that when just one person in the kingdom won't bow down to him, it, it begins to consume him and eat him, eat him from the inside out. But he's shrewd. He's deceptive. He's thoughtful. And so he pulls back and he waits. He takes his time and he begins to superstitiously cast lots for, for just the right time to go before the king. And he finally decides he's going to go into the king and he's going to make the king an offer that he cannot refuse. He's basically going to say to the king, I'm going to pay you a whole bunch of money to get rid of one of your problems. And so when he goes into the king, he makes his pitch. We actually hear him say something that's fairly insightful. This is a revealing comment. That Haman gives us in verse 8. Let me read it again. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws, their laws are different. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So while Haman is acting in deceptive ways, while he has an evil heart, his insight is not wrong. What creates the tension between the enemy and between God's people is God's law. It's God's way. It's that God's way moves in one direction while the kingdom of darkness moves in another direction. That God's people are called to go one way and the rest of the world is moving in the other way and that's what creates the friction. That's what creates the tension. That's what creates the problem. It's God's law. It's His way. As He says here, that is so different from everybody else. So let's take the church of Jesus Christ, for example, and think about this. We have a calling. We have a mission. We have certain commands that we've been obeyed to follow. And as we follow out the order that Jesus has given us, it creates tension. It puts us in the crosshairs of life. And that is a challenge. But here's the question we have to ask. If we compromise, if the pressure, if the, 
pushing back opposition against us, if we cave and if we compromise, what do we have left? If we aren't the distinct people of God who preach a distinct gospel message, who live in a distinct way from the world, then what the church becomes is just a lame social club. We literally lose our very purpose for existence. So consider, for example, if we just obeyed the first of the Ten Commandments. Let's just take the first one. The first of the Ten Commandments. That it would create a radically different pattern than the shape of this world. The first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. If in my life there's no other gods before God, if God, the one true God, is the highest thing and the most important thing in my life, then that means I don't put my career first. I don't put my money first. I don't even put my family first. And I most especially don't put myself first. And so just for us to follow the first one of the Ten Commandments, just to say, God, I'm going to follow your law, and I'm just going to take the very first one, and I'm going to follow that, that puts us in the crosshairs of life. That puts us at odds with everybody else in the world around us. So what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that the way forward during this time period and the way forward for us in now here in the 21st century, the way forward for the church is not the way of compromise. The way forward is to embrace our distinctiveness, is to embrace that, as Haman says here, the law of God is different than anything else in the world. Um, maybe some of you have uh, either watched golf or maybe you've even played golf yourself. And, you know, you see a lot of times you'll see as a golfer approaches their ball, uh, they reach down on the ground and they'll you know, pick up a few blades of grass and sort of toss it up in the sky. Or maybe they'll, they'll find a leaf kind of lying around and they'll, you know, they'll toss up in the sky. And they're trying to see, you know, which way is the wind blowing? Is, the, is it kind of blowing in my face? Is it going that way? And then, and then the idea is after you find out kind of which way the wind is blowing, then you, you determine how to line up and, you know, how to hit, hit your shot depending on, you know, how, how the wind is blowing one way or the other. Here, here's the temptation for every church and every person alive today. The temptation is for us to go out and, and kind of see, okay, which way are the winds of our culture blowing? You know, which way are the winds of the opinions of others blowing? You know, which, which direction are things going in life? And then take that, taking that into calculation, then we decide, okay, this is how I'm going to live. Or this is what our church is going to do. This is how we're going to be. No, the, the call of God is to say, look, it doesn't matter which way the wind is blowing. It doesn't matter what's popular. It doesn't matter whose opinion this will offend or whose opinion this will agree with. Our job is to set our course according to the law of God. But Satan wants to lie to us, and he wants us to believe that somehow the law is bad. He wants us to believe that just because we're not saved by the law, that maybe the law is something we throw out, maybe the law is something we don't want to deal with, maybe the law isn't something that we med meditate upon day and night. But no, the law is good. The law is right. The law is relieving to the heart. The, the law restores our soul. The law leads us in the paths of righteousness. The law is good. And it's for our good. And if we obey God, if we follow his way in this world, it will make a different life. It will set us on a different path. But the call forward for us here, right now, in this moment, is to see that as a good thing. To see that what it means to be the light of the world is to stand out in this world. What it means to be the light of the world that God uses to draw in his sons and daughters unto all eternity is for us to embrace the distinctiveness. It's for people to see that as they continue to struggle and live the way of the world and bomb out, and then to see, you mean there's another way? 
You mean there's something different? You mean heaven itself has come down and shown us what leads to flourishing? That we might establish that kind of community of light that is different, that is distinct, but that is used by God for good. Now, up to this point, uh, as we've been working through the passage, we've kind of been dancing around the real problem. And so, fourth this morning, the enemy is a murderer. The enemy is a murderer. We'll read verses 10 through 13. It says, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So Haman gets mad at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. Here's one person in all the kingdom that won't bow down, and he fixates on it. He comes up with this plan. He goes into the king, and here we find out what this really would mean. Clearly, to repeat it again in verse 13, the king sends out letters with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. It couldn't get any darker than this. This is certainly the, the high point of tension in the book of Esther, and we might even argue that it is the high point of tension in the entire Bible. That if you're following the storyline of the Bible all the way back from Genesis 3.15, when God promises to send a Messiah into this world, as we begin to follow and trace the storyline of the Bible, what we're doing as we trace that storyline is we're looking for that Messiah. We are looking for that one who has been promised, and God begins to narrow in on what family that Messiah will come from, and we find out that that Messiah will come from the Jews. And so we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and now we get to Esther chapter 3, and the entire ethnic group of the Jews are facing annihilation. The line through which God was going to send the Messiah is on the verge of extinction. By keeping Genesis 3.15 in our minds, we realize that this plot to annihilate the Jews is really the story of the seed of the serpent making enmity with the seed of the woman. This is a story of Satan's hatred for Jesus. And ultimately, as we continue to read the Bible, not only his hatred for Jesus, but anyone who's associated with Jesus. Take, for example, First uh, Peter chapter 5. We read a good portion of it this morning. But I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. Consider this. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So if we belong to Jesus in this world, we have an enemy. We have someone up against us. Satan wants to devour us. 
He wants the church dead. He wants your marriage to fail. He wants your life to struggle. He wants you to doubt God. He wants to tempt you to sin. And in particular, this story in particular helps us understand how Satan uses death. That he uses the fear of death. He dangles the fear of death in front of us to make us shrink back from the mission of Jesus. He wants us to not, to not move forward with faithfulness to God, and so he puts the fear of death in front of our face that we might be scared, that we might be afraid. Death has this way of making us shrink back. The fear of death has this way of making us want to close our mouth and not open our mouth to follow through on what Jesus has called us to do. And so as we go about this mission, as we go forward, we have to remember what our relationship to death is. Death should be this scary thing. Death should be something that we're all terrified of. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, the sting of death has been removed. So even though we have a terrifying enemy, and even though, yes, today, our brothers and sisters all throughout the world are being put to death for their faithfulness to Jesus, we do not lose heart. The devil wants to devour us, but as 1 Peter says, at just the right time, at just the right time, God will deliver us. So take courage. And as we move through the book of Esther, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see Mordecai and Esther wrestling with, do they remain faithful to God or do they cower in fear? Do they begin to live their lives on the retreat or do they press in to God's faithfulness? But we don't want to get too far ahead this morning. Uh, So we turn now to the most chilling thing about this whole chapter. Maybe you're thinking, how could this get any worse? But verses 14 and 15 show us the the depth of depravity. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 say, A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So as you can imagine, an order like this, a decree like this from the king, would make people nervous, would send fear down people's spines, that there's an entire ethnic group who on one day is going to be exterminated off the face of the planet, and it sends the world around into chaos. And yet, in the middle of all that, we see Haman and the king sit down together and have a drink. They pop one of their best bottles, and they revel in their power, in their control, They have just signed the death warrant for an entire people group. And there's not one ounce of trepidation. There's not one ounce of remorse. There's not one ounce of them feeling like maybe they've made a bad decision. No, they sit down and they rejoice. They celebrate because they think they have won the victory. And so fifth, that leads us to the fact that the enemy may seem victorious at times. The enemy may seem victorious at times. There couldn't be a better picture. There could not be a better picture of the fact that at times we look around in this world and it feels like evil has won. It feels like Satan has won. While all the world is in chaos, we see the enemy sit down to have a drink, sit down in victory. This same picture has has and will repeat itself over and over in history. The death warrant for God's people has been signed and it appears to us that Evil has won. When the evil one seems to get an upper hand in this world, when we see sin celebrated in the streets, 
when it feels like all is lost, when we see good, godly, right people being marginalized, pushed off to the side, and even put to death, we can't help but feel at times, has Satan won? Has evil won? Uh, This is illustrated vividly by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He he wrote so much, but uh, this, this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is probably his most famous. Uh, In the allegory, Aslan, who's the lion, represents Jesus. And in this particular uh, moment in the book, Aslan lays down his life for uh, one of his people who was a sinner, just like Jesus lays down his life for his people who are sinners. And so we see this beautiful picture of the gospel in this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But at this particular moment, right before the lion is killed, C.S. Lewis wants us to feel the despair. He wants us to feel what it feels like when it appears for a moment that evil has gotten the last word. And so he writes into the story this witch who's going to kill Aslan, kill the lion. And this is what, this is the words that C.S. Lewis puts in her mouth right before she kills him. The witch says, and now, who has won? Fool, do you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, but when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand then that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And then she kills him. And so many times, this is the picture of life. It feels like the evil one has gotten the last word. And in these moments, there are basically two temptations that come into our lives. On the one hand, one temptation, when we see evil gaining ground, when, we see, when it seems to us that evil in this world is, is rising and, 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 and getting the victory, the one temptation is for us to join in. For us to think, man, you know, if I'm honest, Haman sitting down to have a drink sounds kind of nice. Maybe that's the life I want. Maybe I've lost power and I want it back. And so I begin to run after power, run after happiness, run after the good life according to the ways of the evil one. That's one temptation when this world seems to show that evil has won. But then on the other hand, we can be tempted to despair. We can simply to just retreat, begin to operate out of fear, think that there's not even a good reason anymore to try to be good, to try to be right, to try to follow God. We kind of throw our hands up in the air and say, look, if, if at every turn, at every time I try to do something good, if every time I try to promote godliness in the world, there's some opposition against me, then what's the point? And we can just give up, think that it's too great, and wallow in despair. But that temptation to despair, it actually leads to our sixth and final thing that we need to know about the enemy. And so finally this morning, the enemy will not prevail. The enemy will not prevail. Uh, There's a detail in this chapter that probably wouldn't stand out to us, but it would have most certainly stood out to a Hebrew reader of Esther. And it has to do with the dates that we see throughout uh, this passage. So for example... You know, if I were writing a story and, uh, you know, I had you read it and I said something about July 4th, but then I didn't give you any other details. I didn't explain anything else about the day itself. I just wrote July 4th. That would mean something to you. 
You know, it, it means something, especially as Americans. I mean, we've, we've lived July 4th over and over and over. There's memories. There's certain things we attach to July 4th, and so it would be a meaningful date to us. Well, here in uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 12, we learn that the day this decree is signed, so the day the, the decree is signed and then hurriedly delivered out by couriers to be proclaimed, was the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month. Now, if you're anything like me, that doesn't mean anything. 13th day of the first month. Okay. But if we were a Hebrew reader, if we were a Jew, and we read Esther chapter 3, we would know that the 13th day of the first month was the day before Passover. The day before Passover. Passover was the celebration that God's people were to partake in year after year after year, remembering that God had delivered them from death. It was this meal that they were supposed to eat together to remember that day when they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and the death angel passed over all their houses rather than taking their lives. It was the day when they were supposed to eat this meal and part of the food was supposed to remind them how they had to quickly get everything, pack up everything together and run towards the sea. And then all of a sudden they found themselves stuck basically good for dead between the sea and between Pharaoh's army, but then God split the sea open and they walked across, across on dry land. The Passover was a remembrance that God defeats death, that God saves his people from death. And so on the very next day, after the king and Haman send out their decree, on the 14th day of the first month, all these families would have sacrificed the Passover lamb. And we can't help but think about the significance that, that, that God was saying to them, I know death hangs over your heads, but I am faithful. I know that right now your death warrant is signed and you are as good as done, but I am the God who brought you out of Egypt from Pharaoh and I will be the same God who will rescue you from Haman here in Persia. We don't know how yet. We'll, we'll learn over the next few weeks. We don't know how yet. But we know this, that Haman will not prevail. Haman will not exterminate God's people. Haman will not thwart God's plan to bring forth his Messiah into this world. And that brings us precisely to the same position we find ourselves in today. See, when you and I think about Passover, we know that while Passover was important, it pointed to something so much greater. That the picture of that lamb being killed and then the blood being put over the door in order to save them from death is actually a, a picture of the greater Savior, Jesus Christ who would give up his life, and that his blood, his eternal blood, would actually be what would save us from the wrath of God. That though you and I had a death warrant hanging over our life, Jesus would come and rescue us from death. And so we are just like uh, these people, that just as Passover would have reminded them and encouraged them that God is faithful, as we look out into this world and we see the chaos and we see the confusion and we see what feels at times like evil winning, we remember God's faithfulness. We remember that the same God who brought them out of Egypt is the same God who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, and then who rose triumphantly from the grave. We worship a risen Christ and this risen Christ tells us that if we are found in him, if we put our faith in him and we are secure in him, the Bible tells us we are more than conquerors. That's what led the reformer Martin Luther to write this in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. Luther writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. This is the confident assurance we have in Jesus Christ. That evil will not win. That Jesus has conquered the grave. See, what the witch didn't know when she killed Aslan the lion is that he would rise from the dead. And what Satan didn't know when he killed Jesus on the cross was that Jesus would rise from the dead. But we have hope in our resurrected Lord. And we know that no matter how, things, no matter how dark things get, the light of Jesus will prevail in this world. So this is what I want to leave us with. We can, we can be faithful to God even amidst all the evil we see in this world, even when it feels like the evil one is getting the upper hand, we can be faithful to God because he absolutely will be faithful to us. Guys, we're not going to wake up one day in eternity and find out that somehow things got out of God's control and Satan has somehow won. We're not going to wake up one day in eternity and realize that, that the evil has actually overtaken the good. We're not going to wake up one day and all of a sudden find out that God has somehow abandoned his people. No, we are going to wake up in eternity one day and we are going to sing hallelujah to the lamb who was slain. Hallelujah to the God who redeemed us from death. Hallelujah to the God who made good on every single one of his promises. Hallelujah to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who did the impossible on our behalf. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you invite your church to revel in the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, that you invite us to sing songs of victory, that you, ins- you invite us to celebrate your victory over and over and over. Lord, that you've given us a meal by which we remember the victory of Jesus where we take his body, we take his blood, and we remember time and time again that he has conquered the grave. Lord, that you've given us a day, this Lord's day, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead to come and gather, that our hearts might be restored, that our courage might be revived, that we might again remember the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray that even if if we don't even leave here with certain particular action steps, even if we don't leave here with some uh, three steps to do something better, Lord, that we will leave here today with a resolve that you are faithful with a resolve that you are a trustworthy God, with a resolve that because Jesus rose from the dead, there is not a banner hanging over our head that is a death warrant. There is a banner hanging over our head that says the resurrected from the dead. Lord, give us hope. Give us courage. Show us the life that we have in you. And God, I pray if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you, who's still wrestling, who's still afraid of death, who's still not sure, God, would you lead them to your son, Jesus? Would you lead them to the one who came into this earth, who lived for them, who died for them, who rose for them, that they might have life? God, give us hope in the sure foundation of Jesus. Stir our hearts to live for you, no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.